0: Let's stand then together for the reading from Matthew chapter 19 and uh, verses 16 to 30. Let's pray as we come now to the Bible. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, come now and speak to us through your word. Would you change us? According to your will and for your glory, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So friends, Matthew chapter 19, and I'll begin to read a verse 16, and then read all the way to verse 30. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands... For my name's sake, we'll receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Well, this is the word of the Lord, my friends. Do please sit down. Or well, we come uh, now to the last in our series on uh, seven days to revitalize your life. And uh, this is day seven. And we've been looking uh, in Matthew's gospel at Jesus' call to follow him and how he has issued that call in a number of different ways and at different times with different challenges and different promises. And this morning we come to what is in many ways, I suppose, the most important question that you and I will ever have to answer, all around the issue of what comes next? What happens after this life? Does anything happen after this life? How do you know? How do you get there? So this is all about eternity. As I say, it's a very important issue. But the trouble with eternity these days, of course, is that many people in the West... Do not seem to believe it. Now there's always the occasional popular book or film. As I say it's a, an issue that we know we, we have to address. And, and there was even one um, recent New York Times bestseller about uh, a child who purportedly uh, went to heaven and came back and uh, told us about it. So it's a theme that people are interested in but... Many people in the West today, eternity is an idea that is far from persuasive. I suspect we're more likely to agree with Bertrand Russell than Christopher Wren. Bertrand Russell, of course, famously said, When I die, I believe I rot. That's it. There's no more. When I die, I believe I rot. Whereas Christopher Wren, the great architect, said that architecture... Is intended to point to eternity. But many people, I think, would be more likely to agree with uh, the saying, When I die, I believe I rot. Uh, For many people today, it is a ludicrously medieval fascination to spend much time thinking about life after death. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker. What about life before death? Uh, It goes along with the coexist bumper sticker that perhaps you've also seen that puts all the different religions on the same level, thereby not really accepting that any of them are ultimate truth, of course. But when someone says, I believe in life before death, what they're really saying is that they don't believe in life after death. In other words, they're wanting to make the most of it now, for when they die, they believe they rot. They rot. You see, people who are sophisticated or feel that they are in their education today and their thinking probably realize that visions of life after death that people may or may not have had when they are experiencing dying or coming close to dying, they probably feel those are no more persuasive of the reality of life after death than a hallucinogenic trip, if you like, for as the body starts to uh, shut down. Uh, neurons will fire off in unpredictable ways, and it's perfectly reasonable to explain that the out-of-body experiences of those who come close to the edge of death uh, are simply their interpretation. It's what they're, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. It's not actually a true uh, factual experience. It's just um, put through the sieve of their own predispositions, what they are already predisposed to believe. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that uh, that is what's happening in these uh, near-death experiences, but sophisticated people today are unlikely to be persuaded by those descriptions uh, if they do not already believe in eternity for other reasons. They're more likely to agree with John Lennon that they can imagine that there is no heaven, if you like. Now, of course, if eternity is real, well, then it makes sense to live for it. And that, of course, exposes the question that is uh, um, pertinent to you and I who, uh, who follow Jesus in one way or another. And probably, if we were asked, would say that we do believe in eternity, But uh, how much do we actually live in the light of that eternity? And perhaps then we, even ourselves, are less than sure about it. And all that shows us why this passage is so important. For as is so often the case here with the rich young man, the, the high achiever, the morally successful, so often it is such people who long for more. I suppose this rich young man might have um, agreed with the James Bond quotation, the world is not enough. So it was with this person. Often it is said it's the poor who dream of how to get to heaven, but it is not only, it's also the rich. Heaven, of course Marx said, is the opiate of the people, but it is as much the dissatisfaction of the otherwise satisfied. Yet, at the same time, achieving it, uh, eternity, heaven, can be especially difficult for such people, Jesus here indicates. So now in this passage, Jesus is introducing for us three key ideas about eternity. First, idolatry. Second, impossibility. And third, reversal. So first, then, idolatry. And this, of course, is the encounter with the young man who had great possessions. Can you see him now? He is perfectly turned out and is full of confidence in his own material wealth, but also his moral wealth. And, of course, this young man asks, apparently, a a good question. How do I get eternal life? Surely no evangelist was ever approached by uh, such an open goal. Uh, Louis Palau tonight would be pleased if he got that question, I think. How do I get eternal life? But we would be surprised if an evangelist today replied how uh, like Jesus did. Jesus appears to be teaching a form of works righteousness. He he says, keep the commandments What's more, when the man tells Jesus in response that he has kept all the commandments, well then Jesus talks about how to be perfect. He says, you you sell what you possess and give to the poor. So Jesus appears to not only be teaching a works righteousness, keep the commandments. That's how you get there. He also appears to be teaching salvation by poverty. Is is this truly the way to heaven? Is this actually what Jesus is teaching? Is this his kind of radical message? Well, no, it is not actually what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Let me explain it for you. What what Jesus is doing is exposing the young man's idolatry. Look how he does it. It is masterful. Uh, First of all, Jesus hints in this direction by prodding him to think through why he asked Jesus about good deeds. Why do you ask me about what is good? He says. There is only one who is good. In the account in Luke, we hear Jesus add, Only God is good. In other words, Jesus is making clear that A, no one can actually be good enough for God by works. B, God alone is good, and C, hinting towards the rich man that in calling Jesus good in the account in Luke and asking Jesus about what is good here, the young man with many possessions may be speaking more truly than he knows. If God alone is good and Jesus is good, then what does that say about Jesus? Connect the dots, Jesus is saying. And then in verse 18, Jesus, of course, quotes from the Ten Commandments. But that this story is not about works, righteousness, or salvation by being poor. It's further made clear by the fact that Jesus only quotes from the second half of the Ten Commandments. That is the half which is concerned with doing what is right to each other. The first half of the commandments about loving God, well, that's left out. So this is not so much a hint as a as a whacking great sort of four by four smack in the head to the to, to the young man. Jesus is, as it were, in the words of Aretha Franklin, saying, "Think," you know, and. And then the young man, with supreme moral confidence, says, all these I have kept. You know? And then Jesus replies, well, if you, if you really want to play that game, if you really want to be perfect, that is, if you actually want to try this game of salvation by works righteousness, though, as he has already said, there is no one who is good but God alone, only one who is good. Then, if you want to play that game, what you've got to do is you've got to deal with your real problem. What is his real problem? It is his idol. That is his things, his money. See, what Jesus is telling this rich young man is that his problem is not money itself. I mean, if the problem was money, giving it to the poor would not be very kind to the poor, would it? You know? The problem is idolatry. The problem he has is that he is worshipping his possessions. Not that he has possessions. He's worshipping them. when Really, he needs to be following Jesus, loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength by following Jesus. Now, I've met idolaters of possessions who are very poor as well as very rich. I've met people who have idolized their success or their beauty or their education or their class. Uh, to quote Calvin, John, not Calvin and Hobbes, uh, our hearts are an idol factory. There's no end to the possible idols we can create. Well, then how do you know if you have an idol? Your idol is the one thing you cannot give up to follow Jesus. And surprisingly for some people, for others it is not money. Though for others, like this, this man here, it, it was. Then we come to the second uh, lesson uh, in this uh, account this morning here. Uh, so, the second lesson here, we've had idolatry. Now we have second. Oh, I love this story. I summarize this story by impossibility. So, idolatry first, second, impossibility. And this is the wonderful story from verse 23 to verse 26, all about the camel. Now, I don't propose to make as much of this story as I have, done when I've preached on it in the past, uh, mainly because other people have noticed that uh, there doesn't seem to be any significant evidence that the eye of the needle is you know, or was a sort of um, gate in Jerusalem at the time, but rather Jesus is talking about a, an eye of a needle, a small, you know, a real needle. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I used to really enjoy making this point with great relish and maximum humor, uh, which is that Jesus is not referring to some special gate called the eye of the needle that a camel has to take its load off to go through. There's, there's no archaeological evidence of which I'm aware about that. The point of this story is not that it's hard to go to heaven by your own human efforts, but that it is impossible. And that's what Jesus is teaching and it may be hard for a camel to squeeze through a small gate, but it's not impossible. It is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, Jesus, by talking about this camel thing and going through the eye of a needle, it's a bit like he was saying, you know, pigs might fly, you see. Camel through an eye of a needle. It's not going to happen. And it's impossible for us in our own power, by our own efforts, to get to heaven. It is funny, though, and I do want to underline it. We can't miss it when Jesus uses his sense of humor, which I think he did have a sense of humor. I mean, after all, is the, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, funnier than a camel. <laughs> really. And you just have to have some imagination here. I just love the picture of a camel attempting to squeeze through the eye of a needle. Can you see it on a cartoon or something? Uh, you know, just, it's a funny long face, you know, sort of squeezing, you know. I just think that's really funny. Uh, it, it reminds me of the so-called uh, funniest joke ever told man calls up emergency services asking them to help because his friend has been seriously wounded or on the verge of death or actually dead. And the voice from the emergency services says, make sure he is dead first. And over the phone can be heard the sound of the man turning around and then firing a shot. And he comes back and says, okay, he is dead now. What next? You know, which is funny, I guess. But um, compared to this, you know, this is really funny. You know. I think it's great. You can make a cartoon out of that and and sell it and make lots of money if you wanted. I think it's fantastic. But of course, the point is that it's meant to make us laugh in a kind way, to laugh at ourselves. You see, you know, it's sort of ha, getting to heaven by keeping the rules, getting to heaven by trying to be good. You might as well try to get to heaven in a baked bean can. Ah, ridiculous camel, you know. And so next time you're, you're tempted to think to yourself, I've got to buy my way into God's good books by doing this, that, or the other to get to heaven. Just say to yourself, don't be such a camel. And that will take care of it, I hope. But then finally and thirdly, we come to the reversal And if this passage is first teaching us to get rid of our idols and follow Jesus, second teaching us that that is impossible in our own strength, that is we need the sovereign grace and power of God, the work of his Holy Spirit. And to be humble enough, whether we are a talented young man like this or whoever we are, to look for that and ask for that. Nothing is impossible for God. Uh, Then uh, it comes thirdly. Uh, having done idolatry, impossibility, thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, for those of us who want to follow Jesus this morning in a a deep way, most importantly, teaching us that eternity is a great reversal. And uh, this is from verse 27 to the end of the passage. And having heard all this encounter and the joke about the camel... Uh, Peter very naturally asks, well, what do we get out of it? You know, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. Hey, what about us? Now, Peter understands, uh, I think, that this is not about money or possessions themselves, but about following Jesus, about idolatry and God's power. But then comes what to me seems to be a very natural question for an earnest disciple to ask, which is, simply put, is this really worth it? Is it worth giving up everything to follow Jesus truly and deeply, not just, you know, follow Him in a sort of following a Twitter account kind of way, but really follow Him is that really worth it, Jesus? And Jesus' answer here is, in summary, oh yes. Uh, in the uh, uh, parallel account in Luke, uh, Jesus, I think, makes clear there what is also here, which is that the hundred times, not only the next life, but also many times blessing in this life as well, See, when we give up something for following Jesus, even if that is a hard thing, we always receive far more in return. It is the logic of grace. It's not going to be an exact like-for-like return. He's not paying you back. He's just pouring his love upon you but but if you if you speak to someone then who has as it were, sacrificed much for Jesus, what you 'll find usually is a smile on their face because they realize really it 's been no sacrifice at all. they have received a hundred times whatever they 've given, which is just jesus way of saying i 'm going to pour my love and blessing upon you, and then of course, the same, but far more will be true for the next life, for all eternity. There will be a grand reversal for those who follow Jesus. Here we may not be, all of us, rulers, but there in Christ we will rule the destiny of the universe. Here we may not, all of us, have the perfect family life we uh, would want, but there we will. Here we may be last, for we um, feel like we give up so much for Jesus, but there we will be first, the last first, the first last, God's upside-down kingdom, the grand reversal to come. Now you know you will say, "What does all this mean then for the issue of eternity? What? Why does you know the idolatry? Why does idolatry that prevents people from getting there, or the impossibility of getting there apart from God's power, and and the grand reversal that will take place for those who are giving up everything to follow Jesus? Why does all that motivate me, persuade me?" Compel me to follow Jesus in the light of eternity, the infinity of time in the kingdom to come when it is finally established. Why is that? Well, it's quite simple really. This actually answers, I think, all of the the real questions that people have about eternity. Uh, Number one, it answers the question about possessions. You see, most people think that those who believe in life to come only do so because they're so disappointed with life here. But the reality is that those who have most drawn from this life realize often that in doing so it leaves you with a sense that this life cannot be all that there is. The world is not enough. And if that person has Jesus, then they... They realize the point of life. You see, the more you take, the more you realize that it's all intended to take you to something else. Uh, Living this life to the full without God is like taking a plane ride to do a parachute jump and then never actually jumping out of the plane and experiencing free fall and a parachute jump itself. There's something about the experience of this life that, like cookie crumbs leading to a cookie jar, constantly says, follow me, follow me, follow till you get to the real point of life. And I think the rich young man shows us that, just as he shows us also that staying fixated on this life to a... To an idolatrous degree, and so missing out on the next, is about as rational as licking your fingers with the cookie crumbs but never going to the cookie jar itself, or having a parachute on your back but never jumping out of the plane, or indeed looking at Jesus Himself, who is indeed and alone good. And hearing him say, follow me, and going away because you would rather keep on playing with your toys. So number one, by exposing the inadequacy of even the best of this life, it points us beyond that to the life to come. Number two, it shows us the way to get there, which is purely by the grace and power of God. See, so many people are wary of thinking about what happens when I die because somehow they realize that they can never be good enough. But clearly here, Jesus is telling us that no one can do enough good and that it is impossible in our own human moral efforts. But God in his power can save us. So what does that do? Well it causes us to follow Jesus who is God incarnate, who can save us, to trust Him, repent of our sins, and rely upon His grace and power to be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again. And then, of course, it motivates us, doesn't it, all those who are following Jesus. It it not only persuades of eternity's truth, It also motivates us to give up everything for Jesus by showing us the grand reversal to come. It may be difficult to give up potential positions of authority to follow Jesus. It may be difficult to leave behind houses to follow Jesus. It it may be difficult to leave behind family. It may be difficult to give up lands or possessions. It may be difficult to do all this. But when it is for His name's sake, well then the reversal to come when those who gave up so much will receive so much. So that then through all eternity, They can continue to practice the joy of giving and receiving, being first, last, and last, first. Such is a grand motivation, for it is a grand reversal. So eternity, not so hard to believe in as you or your friends might think, and worth living for. Well, let's pray together as we uh, come in a moment to the Lord's table. And of course, as we think of that, we think of the words of Jesus at that table that Paul, uh, that Paul then quotes and how he summarizes them by saying, We proclaim his death until he comes. Father, help us to live in the light of eternity, Uh, to um, uh, not begrudge you anything that we give up to serve you, for you in the logic of grace pour blessing upon us, to realize it's only by the power of, uh, of your Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel. And therefore to repent of our sins and put our trust in you. And Father to give up our idols, whatever it is that stops us from following Jesus. To live in the light of eternity. May this be the experience of everyone here this morning, I pray. In the name of Jesus, Amen.